it's amateur night here, so. In many ways. <laughs> Two of the best amateurs out there. How's that? <laughs> we'll go with that. Evening, everybody. Looks like we got a few people jumping on here, so. I don't know what the protocol is. What's Rick usually wait a minute or so, probably. We'll let people file in here, and uh, I think we got a special one for you guys tonight, so. Anybody else nervous? How about you, Jay? Are you nervous? Sure. There we go. Looks like Rachel's introduced everybody here. And uh, if you got questions, throw them in the chat box. Thank you, Josh, for quit picking rocks. So we can just uh, listen to us tonight talk about rocks, probably. But uh, evening, everybody. Uh, Rick called me Tuesday night there, wondering if I could uh, fill in for him and I tell everybody, you know, it's a great honor, Rick, trust the guy with the podcast. He's had such great guests on, so anytime I've been asked to fill in for him, I try to shoot pretty high, and uh, I think we got a great one tonight. And, Jay, I'm glad you had the time to join us tonight, but uh, Rick always starts this off with uh, what's on your mind tonight. So I want to honor that, and tell us what's on your mind tonight, and we'll go from there, so. Well, thanks, Lauren, for, for the invite. Appreciate that. And um, looking looking forward to visiting with you a bit. And I think um, as far as uh, what's on my mind, um, you know, we've been we've been dealing a lot with uh, carbon here in the northern plains, uh, especially over the winter uh, in the past year here. So maybe a little conversation on that as the evening goes as well and uh, might be of interest i think we'll eventually get there but uh one of the places i wanted to go is i want to dive deep into your career for the younger guys on there where where did you start and how did you ever get to be the pope at the at the uh, vatican city now known as bismarck north dakota for soil health uh, I knew I knew you were going to be a challenge, Lauren. So, uh, <laughs> so I uh, I started with USDA uh, back in 1980, and um, you know I um, spent my career in North Dakota, primarily in Bismarck. And uh, Bismarck had an airport, and it was a good place to work out of. And um, you know, one of the you know really what I some of the first items that um, kind of started to motivate me in terms of uh, how do we how do we build back uh, was just trying to control erosion. Uh, the 1980s um, were for our area for the for the northern plains. It was um, full full tillage systems. Um, there, there really were no no-till systems, so to speak. Uh, occasionally, we might have a field of winter wheat that might have been drilled uh, directly into stubble. But uh, for the most part, uh, it was lower diversity. Uh, spring wheat was our primary crop at the time, and 
and uh, everything was uh, tilled and usually fall tilled as well. And so we're just, just starting to uh, look at how do we control erosion and how do we, how do we get these clay colloids to, to stay put? And uh, so I started treating, uh, basically I was uh, more treating symptoms. So, you know, I, I started out by building structures you know, I built waterways and I built diversions and, you know, anything that moved soil uh, that I thought was going to make it better was uh, a lot of emphasis was put on it. And, uh, but at the same time in the eighties, I started observing more. One of the things that taught me something about infiltration is in the eighties, I did a lot of, uh, uh, I did a lot of irrig flood irrigation work on the Missouri river bottoms. And so we would do the land leveling, you know, you do the grid surveys and you put a slope on it and, and uh, everything on the Missouri river bottom here was flood irrigated in the eighties. And it was primarily corn and alfalfa for the most part on, on that. And so I started observing how we'd run the water down the lines, you know, uh, on the furrows and the corn and we'd shut off the water and on the gated pipe. And then we would, send another burst down after a little bit and it was always go further. And really what I was observing, didn't know it at the time, but I was observing water being sealed off in terms of pore spaces and it was a micro slaking and it would seal off and then the water would go further down the furrow. And, and consequently this was perceived as, as good. Even though we, we weren't getting a lot of water to percolate very deeply, uh, we were getting it all the way to the other end, so to speak. And so I started learning quite a bit um, about soil function, specifically infiltration, just by working initially, probably about 10 years uh, worth um, on uh, flood irrigation. And then eventually we converted them all to, to pivots over time and eventually those pivots all went to low pressure and they went to no-till systems. But that came later. And so then we started to get into the 90s and we started to take a look at uh, doing a little better job on erosion. We started some of the, kind of some of the first no-till systems um, would have been early 90s in this part of the world. Um, there was a lot of direct seeding with Concords and you're, you're kind of an equipment person, Lauren, I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. Yeah. Sweeps, yeah, sweeps, uh, heavy, heavy uh, chisel plow frame uh, seeders. Oh, drills. Yeah, so they, they mostly went with sweeps, direct seeded, and this was a big step forward. Uh, we now had a little bit of residue. Erosion got a little bit better. And so that was kind of the start. And then from Concords, uh, we slowly figured out we needed diversity to make a no-till system work. And so the first few temps that um, we probably had, two, as I recall, in, during my time uh, with USDA, we had like three major pushes through the 80s and 90s on, on trying to get no-till systems established. And every one of them, I, I, can, I can tell you with great confidence, failed. And, and so um, it, was, it was when we started to get into the, the early 90s, finally, uh, we started to do a little better job of that when we brought in the row crop at the same time. So at one time, this part of, of the Northern Plains didn't really, it always had corn, but the only time there was corn that was combined was that, uh, that wet year, okay? The rest of the time, it was generally taken for silage. 
but it was at that period of time then that uh, that that changed and we started growing uh, successfully uh, when we added it into the no-till systems it made them work here and so consequently we had a combination then of row crop more diversity um, we even had in the 90s we probably even had our first uh, maybe covered crop but it was uh, definitely forage orientated one maybe two species was considered pretty pretty crazy and uh, that was kind of the initial you know start uh, for us and then I think when we went into the 2000s you know like the through the 80s through the 90s now we're in the 2000s we started finally slowly figuring out that every green plant's a carbon inlet and so I, I did monitoring on our systems uh, monitored a number of the cropping and the grassland system. So soil tests and just any data that I could accumulate for that particular client. And we started putting together kind of a storyline uh, on carbon. So our no-till systems are here, in, and this is relative to your landscape and your location on this planet, but um, it took us about 12 years to accumulate 1% soil organic matter. And at the time, that was considered virtually impossible, mm -hmm. and, but, but it wasn't. And that was without cover crops. And so um, co cover crops at that time, in my mind, Lauren, they were okay for you, but they weren't for me. Yep. <laughs> and I had to get my head Too far around. north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone knows that can't work. And so I had to get my head wrapped around what they do uh, from a plant physiology viewpoint that this plant is capable of bringing carbon in during a time of year that we were never bringing carbon in. And so, you know, our, our fall covers, and then as time went on, we started bringing the covers into, well, like 60 inch corn or, or sunflower and those type things. So we could grow them during the year, which in the Northern Plains is a lot more effective because of our seasons and short seasons and that type of thing. So that brought us in, you know, started getting into about 2010, uh, somewhere in there. And of course, the whole carbon thing started getting uh, much more traction, if you will. Um, major companies uh, started uh, toward the end of the 10s, uh, major companies started talking about carbon. And uh, CO2 was tossed around, you know, from a viewpoint of uh, everything from uh, injecting it to to uh, global warming, to plant food. I mean, it, 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 it ran the gamut. And, and really, if we kind of go back to our grade school or maybe uh, high school days, summers in there when we learned about the carbon cycle, you know, and for, for a lot of us, we maybe didn't um, carry it with us uh, into our, into our uh, careers, but really it just told it really told us what we needed to know. And so now we started seeing that start to unfold. And uh, so in the course of all of this, you know, um, Minokan Farm came up. And so as, uh, as we started moving down this road, um, we had five, five farmers on a board that were, you know, they were pretty um, aggressive and they were uh, very knowledgeable and good at what they did. And uh, so with them and, and the office staff, I mean, we, we became kind of one team, if you will. And um, 
what was really kind of good about it is everybody had um, the ability to say how they thought what their feelings were and what their thoughts were, but we never lost sight of the ball. So we, we always kind of, we always moved toward it. We took different paths to get there. And I think that's part of the beauty of a good team. You know, you take a different path, but you ultimately end up at the same place. But all this was occurring. Um, and so then when we started getting close to the 2010s, uh, that's when the Minokan farm was put into place in 2009. And, um, you know, it's kind of a throwback, uh, Lauren. It's um, uh, because at one time the, the United States had conservation demonstration farm locations throughout the nation. There was one or two in North Dakota. And those were kind of determined to be ineffective. And that's when uh, legislation was put out for soil districts instead. So more of a grassroots scenario. And so the Minokan farm is kind of a throwback to the old demonstration farms from many years ago and, and tied in with the local soil district. And so it was kind of a combination and uh, was intended to be a demonstration farm that, that would, be, it would be okay to look at a concept that might fail and then be able to work on that concept and bring it forward. So like our cover crop combinations and those type things, a lot of those efforts uh, kind of came out of that, that type of thought. And uh, with that, you never, if you have a proven system, we're usually not using that. You know, we're usually using something that pushes the envelope on one of the sides. And, and so consequently, you have to get into that frame of thought, you know, which is different for, for humans. Right, because you know we like something to work every time, and we like it to be successful every time. And I'm no different than anyone else. I like that too, but in this particular setting, uh, it's more of a unraveling, uh, if you will, and then a redirecting and a reconcept. And and uh, so that you know that's kind of how I how I got started. And so I, I was I went from the symptoms, treating all the symptoms. Um, I actually have, um, and, I, and I gave this a term, uh, five, five minutes before lunch is what I call it. And what it was, I, um, I uh, got uh, on the agenda for an NRCS meeting and I still remember it quite well. It was in Jamestown, North Dakota. And, and I had made arrangements um, uh, with management uh, to obtain some time on the agenda. And uh, management said, well, we'll give you five minutes before lunch, provided the real work is done. Then you can have your five minutes. So I said, I'll take it. And so five minutes before lunch, I, I was given the floor. And I told my peers, I said, I'm, I'm done treating symptoms. I said, I'm not treating them anymore. And I said, I think we need to take a look at how do we rebuild it? Because rebuilding is, is exciting and you see so many benefits from your efforts and so many additional positives that spin out of it. Whereas just trying to conserve something that's already degraded, is really frustrating and, and it doesn't lead us in a, a positive direction. So I, I, so I took the five minutes before I got real quiet in the room, Lauren, and then I had lunch alone that day. <laughs> nobody nobody said anything negative nobody asked a question just got real quiet and uh everybody uh 
everybody made arrangements to have lunch somewheres, but <laughs> I wasn't at the cool kids table that day, I guess. But um, that was kind of, for, for me, it was my start and, and uh, you know, with a little traction and, and I uh, had support on the local team. And so that, and, and they were very, very supportive. And, uh, you know, we would put the concepts out and monitor them. And then we just kind of kept, kept moving. And uh, so all, all of that really made a, a substantial difference, um, especially on erosion. Uh, especially on our carbon levels. So we started seeing carbon levels improve. We started seeing, um, we started understanding the covers uh, and what they do. And we started to understand the plant physiology better. But probably one of the more important things, if I could go back in time, Lauren, I would have started with soil aggregates. I would, that's where I would have started. If, if somebody would have pulled me aside and said, look, look, kid, Here's what you should take a look at and understand this concept, and then you can build on it. And, uh, but I kind of came through the concept the other way around. And uh, so the soil aggregates, um, whenever I go anywhere or to any farm, I always take two sieves along with me. And it's a, one's a two miller, millimeter and one's a one millimeter. And you, know, you put them on top of each other and you sieve some soil and you get a very uniform soil aggregate. And then you can apply, put it in a cap uh, with a little distilled water and you can see if it's stable or not right, right there in front of you. And I don't have to send it in or anything. I can get kind of a reading. And really, if we understand building those aggregates, wow, that's, that brings you to all these other items that I kind of came in backwards on. And, and I was building them and without knowing it, you know, and, and so you'd see something improve, but it was like, well, why did that improve, you know, and, and so as, as we start, of course, we saw our infiltration improve, and really when you're in a low moisture, like our environment, you know, Lauren, a little different than yours, but, you know, if we get 16 inches total precip, that, that's pretty good, so I checked this morning, we are at uh, six and a quarter inches for the year, and that is just about dead average for us. So we're just about an average year, okay? And so when we have a rain, you know, it used to be our team, you know, if we got a rain, it was exciting, right? Mm -hmm. and so our team, they'd say something, well, how much rain did you get? Well, initially it was like, well, I got 75 hundreds, 80 hundreds, 90 hundreds, okay. Now, if you would ask them, how much rain did you get? They would say all of it. And so that, yep. that's, the, that's the difference, you know, that's just, and when we finally hydrated our soils, you know, in the eighties, they were bare and into the nineties, uh, as the no-till system started coming in, we started to slowly cover them. But once we got our soils hydrated, it was a different game. I mean, it just changed for us so dramatically. And so once we got them hydrated, when we got them covered, they hydrated. And, and that was a big game changer for building aggregates. At the time, I did. didn't realize it, but eventually I did. So, um, we, we saw the same thing here. I just looked. Uh, we're about two inches behind normal here right now. Are you? And my neighbors are all panicking and stuff like that. And I, uh, about a week ago, I finally had time to go dig seed. And, you know, the corn is six, eight inches tall here at that point. And at seed depth, we had mud. Yeah. I could make a mud ball and it's like, I'm not worried. You know, we, we did luck out. We got an inch 
Tuesday night here when I got home, but uh, I, I, I can echo everything you're saying, but I, I want to back you all the way up to the 80s. Yeah. You know, you didn't, you didn't have Google yet. Yeah. How did you go about finding them key mentors and who were them mentors <laughs> like through the 80s? Okay, so, so I did something a little unorthodox um, in terms of, of that type of information. So, so when, when I would, you know, I would attend a uh, workshop or session that I had maybe read about and, and uh, so I'd travel to it and uh, I would go ahead and uh, listen. And so a couple, couple key ones uh, for me, well, one of course was uh, Dwayne Beck and Pierre and so he was in North Dakota one winter three different times, okay? And I, and I was very young in starting this and, and I was early on, okay? And so I would get my notebook and I'm a front row sitter, you know? I like to sit in the front row and uh, I like to have my notebook and I like to take my notes and um, my eyes aren't that good. So another reason to sit in the front. <laughs> and so um, I sat and I went to this, I listened to him. I took my notes. I got, I got a little ways into his talk and he lost me. And uh, a few weeks later, he's at a different place in North Dakota that winter. And I go there and I get further into the talk. Cause in the meantime, I had researched a number of items that uh, I needed to, to work on. And so I got further into it. You know, I got quite a ways into it. Maybe got halfway or so. And then, uh, you know, he lost me again and, and uh, I'd go back to work and a few months or a few weeks or maybe a month later, third time he was talking uh, in North Dakota. And I, um, I got quite a long ways into it. And then my, <clears throat> then <clears throat> it, kind of, uh, it kind of concerned me because this guy started walking over to me. And he came over to me and he said to me, and, and he denies this, Lauren, but it, it, I'm here to tell you it's true. He looks at me and he says, are you a slow learner? Because he said, this is the third time you're here with your notebook. And I said, evidently, I am. And that was my first meeting with him, you know. And uh, of course, he became a mentor for our group. You know, So we brought him to Bismarck and we had a couple of great workshops in a row with him. And so a very similar thing with uh, Don Rykowski, uh, Dr. Rykowski out of Morris, Minnesota with Carbon. And mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't know Don, but I had read everything that he had done, okay? All of his work. And so I called him one day and I introduced myself and I asked him a similar question that I asked Dwayne. I said, would, would you train me? Would you teach me? And he said to me, he said, what, what, he said, when can you be here? And I said, what time does your coffee pot come out in the morning? Oh, he said, usually about seven. I said, we'll be there. So Kathy and I hopped in the vehicle, drove to Morris, Minnesota that evening, got a room. Next morning, we're sitting at the Rykowski's breakfast table. He spent the entire day with me on one topic. And so, so I asked a number of people like that um, over the years and uh, to, to teach me. And, and um uh, you know, to, to their credit, the, there's not a one of them said no. I, I think a lot of them thought, oh, my God. <laughs> but but, but uh, they didn't say that. <laughs> we'll do what we can. But I think sometimes that goes, um, we don't do enough of that. 
And uh, for me, that was a huge item, what, what you just asked, Lauren. I mean, because I, I had a number of people like that. Um, I think we all can echo that same thing, but you know, that, that's what I want the young guys to hear. You, you know, nowadays you Google it, you look for the YouTube channel. I don't know if Dwayne even knows where YouTube is yet, but you know, <laughs> guys like me respect him. You know, there, there's, there's them people out there that you just got to take the time. And, you know, that's what I love about the podcast. We've got to get that knowledge recorded and shared that knowledge and that, and you well, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned the five, guys that helped get the milking farm there's a similar story to the whole burley county experience isn't there yeah if you could share that yeah so so uh you know we would um we'd basically meet as a team and uh, we would meet um and and we would self-educate so for a number of years we would take a topic a different topic each month and then we'd educate ourselves on that topic. And then we would bring in a speaker uh, for a workshop uh, specifically with that topic as well. And so consequently, that was kind of starting our learning curve. And then of course, uh, these, these five farmers would start applying those principles. Every one of them started applying a no-till system. They started applying the cover crops, the grazing systems, because uh, now all of a sudden we weren't looking at two or three pasture grazing systems. We were looking at recovery time that would be well over 90% uh, percentile. So you got to get in quite a number of pastures um, to, you know, the, the first cross fence you add and you get 50%, that's the really effective one. Okay. Monetarily, that one's really effective. After that, the math is you, you have to keep applying pastures, but the math gain is much less each time. So to get into the 90s, which is where we really saw things happen, these guys were in there. And so on the livestock end, and then on the cover crop end, and cropping system. End. And so it was a combination of things where you self-educate with others, okay? And then you bring in expertise, and so for many years, we had um, uh, workshops. We'd do a summer uh, one and, and a winter one. And so we would bring in people from well, virtually around the world. And, and this was a lot. Uh, this was a huge help and opportunity, uh, you know, if you're, if you're willing and your mind's open, uh, because you're going to stand on all these people's shoulders. If you, if you get anything accomplished at all, it's because you stood on somebody else's shoulders. So they gave you a boost up. You aren't, you aren't getting up there alone. And so you, you uh, have that type of scenario and these people were all very supportive. And so that gave, that gave us here in Burley County, that gave us that opportunity. And so I, I had spent 30 years and so I was kind of the monitoring guy. So I would monitor the systems and I tried to be that, play that kind of role in conjunction with the people that were actually putting in the ground help unravel the why with the help of any others yeah yeah it's a it's a process right it's a process yeah so like like this core group then was that your soil and water conservation group or it's just a bunch of guys it, met at it, the office there it, it was it was yes to both items Lauren. and so there was uh the soil district board itself uh was 
It's part, a big part of the core, but then there was a periphery of others, okay? And sometimes, you know, the, to me, the advantage was we had people that on, their, on this team that weren't board members. And we had people that were board members. There was advantages to, to both. And so, so you get people thinking different, right? You get people thinking different. Again, heading toward a similar goal, uh, we want some regeneration. We want to change from what we've been doing. Change is never easy, right? So it's, it, that's a human aspect. And then we started to bring in um, uh, a holistic educator. And so we added the holistic educator and it helped us like, get another level uh, because of the human aspect. You know, humans are pretty darn interesting and, and trying to understand why they do what they do. Uh, that, that's a challenge. And so we, with the holistic educator, we started bringing in holism. And so when you start bringing in holism, it forces your mind to grasp a wider concept. And, and um, yeah, so kept, kept building and kept bringing in these type uh, scenarios and kept adding those type of uh, people uh, to there. So, so the people were old, young, um, male, female, uh, different walks of life, um, ranchers, farmers, gardeners. Uh, you, you need them all. And so yeah. you, you start bringing in this kind of concept. And then from there, you know, we started started to build. We wanted to rebuild the landscape. And I, I remember asking some of them to, you know, different different ones to be members. And I said, I said, it's a, a little bit of a, a difficult task. And so I'm going to ask you to help with a, a very difficult task. Uh, we might have way more failure than success. But but the challenge is is big, and and it's and the reward is enormous, and so you know you start looking at the whole human aspect, start looking at the um, the whole monetary gain for what happens in a region, you know, like or even within a state, um, or in this case uh, specifically a county, what happens to the economics, what happens to the ag stability, what happens to the communities. Um, and you start tying this all together ultimately. Yeah. Would that have worked if it wouldn't have been for most of the guys just coming out of the 80s being receptive to that? <laughs> well, they, you know? they, they all had, um, that, that's a good question. And, and we had some conversation on that actually. So all five of these individuals had gone through these full tillage days and now we're looking at making those changes. They all had experienced severe wind erosion. They all had experienced water erosion. They all had experienced blown out crops, droughts that really shouldn't have been a drought, uh, you know, like you described. Um, but we had, <clears throat> we had bare soils, we had poor soil function. Uh, the, the interesting thing was, you know, we just couldn't get the water into the soil and we had virtually sealed, we had just sealed it. And so as our carbon levels dropped, we didn't have enough food and energy in that soil to build aggregates. And so when you can't build an aggregate anymore or at a much reduced rate for building, because they're always diminishing. So all of a sudden you start to see this, and it's always subtle, but you start to see this decline in soil function, ultimately meaning we couldn't get water into the, into the profile. Now, at the same time, we're in the Prairie Pothole region too. So you'd see wetlands flooded. 
and, and there's another clue for you. Okay, you're in this drought, you get trouble growing this crop, the wetlands flooded outside of its banks. What's, what's that all telling you? Well, it's telling you that water's moving across the landscape and it's, and it's going to these locations that are lower in the landscape, but it doesn't go into the profile. And so I, I, I think they were very committed and I think you, grow, you raise an excellent point uh, that had been actually had been discussed in some of these meetings. Could have it been swung without that kind of commitment or understanding of where they came from? Because they, they knew what they had previously and they knew how that played out. So that, that did give them a bit of an unfair advantage. I, I keep going back to the 80s. You know, I know how bad things got here. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the attrition rate was very high in that time frame. Correct. And you, you compound, you know, we had good weather through them days. So I, I can just imagine the stress levels and that that them guys were facing through that same, same time frame with a drought. Right. Or, you know, even if it wasn't, you know, if it was their own doing, you know, just the fact they were losing crops in that. Yeah, and the, the 80s were, you know, and we had some really dry years in the 80s as well, uh, which is which is true. They were definitely lower precip years. And so you combine that uh, with setting the stage for this kind of disaster. So the, the 80s were really a tripping point of, yes, we're willing to change. And just to have the fortitude to do the kind of time investment, money investment, and all that, that you guys went through. I just, you know, the inspiration they took to do that is why you're, why you're here today, I guess. I mean, you know, that, that's, but, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. keep, keep going on that mindset, you know, bring it all the way forward to the, you know, going from Burley County to the Minokan farm, were them same people involved as you built out to the Minokan farm? Like I said, now you've brought in the city people and all that stuff, the urban and all that stuff. How did that transition happen? So there was some conversation. Uh, so before the Minokan farm was in 09, 2009, but there prior to that, uh, we ran a smaller uh, demonstration plot. So it was like about a five acre demonstration plot and it was in between Bismarck and present day Minoka Farm. And uh, as that kind of came to an end, uh, the board had talked that they definitely want to secure some acres. And so, <clears throat> you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, we're going from five acres to 40 acres. You know, that's, that was kind of my, in the back of my mind, you know, and this was exciting, you know, because we we're actually going to secure something that we could put some long-term effort into, okay? And so consequently, um, uh, the board was real adamant uh, they would not bid against a farmer, another farmer. They wouldn't do that because that's a touchy issue, I think, in any state, North Dakota for sure. And so they uh, were very, uh, very aware of that. So there was a parcel of land located at near Minoka, North Dakota. And um, it had been for sale for quite a few years, actually, and they'd gone through three or four speculators, three or four different speculators had owned it. So there wasn't a farmer who had, farmer hadn't owned it in probably 10 years or more, okay? So it kind of lost its identity a bit, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, after that had been for sale for a number of years and um, they approached the owner and secured it. And I remember in the board meeting, 
I looked at my uh, I looked at the wall clock when the when the topic came up on the agenda, and I looked at it again after the motion was made, and it was less than five minutes, and it was unanimous. And but the homework had been done before, and they had jumped all the hoops before, and so they secured the acres. Uh, they had they had uh, some some. Uh, dollars uh, saved and then they um, went to the local one of the local banks there's no shortage of them in Bismarck North Dakota and so I went to one of the local banks and secured the difference and the, the banking industry uh, was owned by a farmer this particular one uh, farmer rancher background and had a lot of farmer ranchers working as loan officers and we went to that particular bank and they were very supportive and uh, and set up the remainder of it to to uh, occur, and so it was a, it was an interesting uh, scenario. And I thought to myself, how many people in in the U.S. Um, or, you know certainly in my position get to experience something like that? It was just it was exciting, and and uh, and it wasn't just me excited. Everybody was excited, and, and so uh, we went ahead and secured it and and uh, started to go down the road. Well, of course, the first thing was. You got to name it right so everybody got to throw some different thoughts in the ring so we put it together a list of like 25 names okay but the one that rose to the top because of what it means in the indigenous language and so Minokan in the indigenous language means you reap what you sow and so to me that was that, yeah. that was just spot on and it, you know, it 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 also honors the the local indigenous tribe, and it local and it honors the local community, and I, I thought it just made a lot of uh, a lot of good sense, and and very symbolic. Very and people don't realize that they think it's named Minokan because of the community, and it is, but it's yep. also the reason it got there was because of its it, what the name means in the in the indigenous language. Speaking of the indigenous, is there still active tribes in your area or what's the potential there? So there's an archaeological dig uh, uh, just a very few miles away and it's rather prehistoric. And so there isn't a tribe living there anymore, uh, but there is a, an archaeological site uh, that is uh, very prominent and uh, very well done. And so Right at that particular location, no, uh, but the Minokan farm has, um, especially within the last five years, uh, had much more contact uh, with our, uh, what I would say probably two to three of our uh, North Dakota uh, Indian reservations, uh, specifically three affiliated tribes and Standing Rock and, and then United Tribes um, College in, in uh, Bismarck. Um, has also had speakers uh, that we've used over the years that have really worked in, really worked in well. And our, so, yeah, so there's been a, there's been a fair bit of contact. Our, our local community, they've started bringing in the uh, Tama Indians to events and that, but they always have them right during planting or harvest. Sure. But sure. Back I want to make it to one of them one of these days and probably should just shut things. I guess the way I'm going lately, I'll probably just shut it down and go one of these days. But uh, I, I tell everybody with everything going on in my world, this year's the first time I actually shut the planter down three times in one day to go to meetings this year. But uh, we, we, we know we're having fun anymore. But uh, 
Uh, I want to go all the way back now. We, we probably haven't talked about the most important part. And one of the things I always respect about you is Kathy and the kids. Yeah. So and, uh, um, how, how did y'all meet? And where, where was young Jay? Yeah. So uh, Kathy and I met in uh, Fargo uh, at college. Um, so Kathy was a music major and I was in the egg end of it at uh, Fargo. Um, and, and, uh, she good. Fortunately, she's not within earshot right now, but, but, uh, my roommate was rather infatuated with her. And <laughs> so I, I hadn't met her ever, but I heard so much about her, but I had never met her, you know, and then eventually I, I did meet her and, um, eventually we, we did get married, uh, 1975, and so we've been married since 75 and uh, we had three children and uh, they're all married living in, in Bismarck actually right now. So that's pretty unique. And then we have uh, five grandchildren and an additional five step-grandchildren. And so that uh, gives us a pretty good uh, realm. Um, but uh, I think Kathy's fully capable of doing any soil health workshop. Uh, so she typically travels with me. Um, I'm a really poor traveler and she's a really good traveler. And, and so, to, you know, if she goes with me, then I'm more inclined to go, otherwise not. Uh, but, um, you know, we spend time on the road. And so we'll pick out um, a music theme, something from the 60s or 70s or something like that. And then, of course, we'll have a playlist. And as we're traveling down the road and then... Um, you know, it, it's great if you can travel with your best friend, right? And, and so then consequently, I think that really um, helps a lot. Um, one particular workshop always stuck out in my mind, Lauren. Um, we got through the workshop. I don't remember what state it was, doesn't matter. And we got through the workshop and then uh, we're talking afterwards and visiting with folks. And out of the corner of my eye, I can see these three guys are talking to my wife in the back of the room. And if you remember ZZ Top, uh, these guys with the long beards and the long duster yep. coats and maybe a hat on of some kind, that's how these guys, these three guys looked. And so um, I'm seeing this conversation and it's, uh, there's an intense conversation going on in the back of the room. And after, after I finished up, you know, and, and uh, we're kind of gathering up stuff and I said to Kathy, I said, what was going on in the back of the room? What was the conversation? Well, she said they, uh, they had planted uh, full season covers for grazing and they were, they were uh, moving their livestock, uh, she said, about once a week and they weren't real satisfied with their, their gains and they weren't satisfied with the recovery. And, and uh, I said, what did you say to them? She said, you know, I told them I, they may want to consider just grazing the, the top part of the plant and I would start moving daily or at least every two days, depending on your labor. And as you move them across, I think you're going to see them respond to this and then put them on a little higher plane of nutrition. And then I see these three guys, you know, kind of shaking their head toward the end and, you know, and out the door they went. And I said, <laughs> So it was, I think she's fully capable of doing a workshop uh, most anywhere. But her background is music. So she was music. music I think that, meeting, that meeting was probably in northern Minnesota, if I remember right. 
Because <laughs> I think I might have bumped into her at one of those. And, <laughs> do you have you know, a beard? That, did you have a beard then? <laughs> uh, not no, but I, I did lose my beard that day. <laughs> I thought I agreed to do the whole event for beer, and we left and didn't even have the beer with. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, but I think that, that was one of those fun days because that's the first time you were in the audience and I spoke, and at one point you were slapping your knee, if I remember right. So. <laughs> Well, if it isn't fun, I don't like to do it. But but yeah. uh, Kathy, Kathy was born in Monahans, uh, Texas, and then uh, grew up primarily in uh, Aiken, Minnesota, um, some years after that. And so if you've ever listened to Garrison Keeler, the old radio show uh, yeah. out of Minnesota, that's how she grew up, exactly how he describes it. And she so she had a great uh, upbringing as a youth in, in Minnesota. And then... And we met at Fargo and, and, um, and then uh, married in 75 and um, hope to make it a little longer. So there, there's five years in between there. Where, where did you go from 75 to 80 then? So I spent a little time uh, before I went to work for USDA, I spent a little time with Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so I worked uh, through USDI, Department of Interior, for a bit uh, before. Um, and then also, um, you know, the, the, the home place, if you will. Uh, so I grew up on a farm located on the state line between North and South Dakota. And so the farm was in both sides of the, of the state line, but the farmstead was in North Dakota. And so we spent some, we spent some early time there uh, securing that my folks were transitioning to uh, retirement at that time, and they passed a long time ago. But um, so we secured that in 1980, and uh, so that took a little time, and then a little time with USDI, and then I uh, transferred into USDA as conservationist. And so my my uh, interests were in in conservation planning, and so what I enjoyed working with was a client, uh, maybe the end gate on the pickup down at the end of the field of the spade and um, you know I to this day I still have a big cardboard box that I keep all my uh, field uh, tools in if you will and uh, I always had it in my office and if I had an appointment I would grab that cardboard box throw it in the pickup and 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 my spade and uh, tells you so many things so many things and and so that's kind of kind of how that transitioned from growing up uh, in the state line. So I, I went to high school in Strasburg, North Dakota. And uh, Lawrence Welk um, would come to the school once a year, at least. And then uh, the school would all, everybody in the school, teachers and students would all go to the gymnasium for a couple hours when he would come. And it would be polkas and waltzes, et cetera, uh, for a couple hours. And he was really uh, extremely generous person to the schools and uh, the, the churches and the communities in that area. You know, they're all small communities and uh, he was good to all of them. And uh, when you had, my wife knows, knew him quite well and uh, uh, because she, she was in music. And so when you would visit with him, you, it was, you didn't know if you were visiting with the janitor or if you were visiting with Lawrence Welk. 
I mean, he was that kind of person. You know? So I, I, I didn't appreciate it at the time. I was too young uh, to appreciate the magnitude. Um, but wow, it, I mean, when you think back on it now, I'm like, I, I should have been should have been more appreciative of it then <laughs> yeah. um, you know mo most of us don't realize what's before us till it's gone it's so true lauren and uh we did have our first one of our first comments that uh if you're not able to make uh kansas the end of the summer here you're, you're more than welcome to send kathy <laughs> thank you <laughs> i'll let her know <laughs> That's from Tyrell Owens, but uh, if you guys got questions there, start popping them up here. We don't want to hold Jay up too late, but uh, uh, I don't want to get too nosy, but yeah, I see something on the shelf there that's really caught my eye, and I got the feeling it means something special, so the, the flag. Yeah, so that was Kathy's dad, um, and so he was a World War II uh, vet and uh, went through North Africa, Sicily, Italy, France, uh, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, of course he passed away quite, quite a number of years ago. And uh, so he was a Minnesotan native and yeah. her, her mother was a Oklahoman. Uh, so I, I never tell Jimmy Emmons that, but, um, <laughs> but uh, she, she was from a colony, Oklahoma. And, um, but uh, yeah, he was, um, he was originally from Palisade, Minnesota, a very wonderful gentleman. And um, military background in terms of World War II and, uh, you know, more of a carpenter by trade. Um, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and then the case tractor, that you said that was in yep. honor of your dad? So the case tractor, um, so uh, the, the chicken was my mother's. So I gave that chicken to my mother when she was alive, gave that tractor to my dad when he was alive. And they both, uh, shortly before they passed, they both came back. And so they were kind of symbolic of uh, how I grew up. And uh, <clears throat> my mother ran the dairy uh, and then we had some brood sows and uh, we had a beef herd. And uh, my, my dad spent his life on a tractor seat and uh, uh, they didn't uh, intertwine. So my dad wasn't allowed in the dairy and my mother never got on a tractor. And so they played their roles and they were very good at both of them. Yeah. A lot of diversity and, um, you know, they were products of the depression. And so my dad was born in 11 and my mother was born in 17. And so they, they both grew up in, in the depression. And my dad told me, First time I talked to him about a no-till system, I thought, wow, this should be an interesting, very short conversation, but we'll see. And so I talked to my dad. I said, what would you think of uh, like direct seeding into stubble? And, the, you know, this was in the very early 80s. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you know what the biggest problem was in the 30s? He said, when we, when we planted here, uh, he said the crop would always come up. Every year we planted in the 30s, it came up. But he said we couldn't get it to stay in the field. And so he said it would just blow right out of the field. And he said, it, but we always had enough moisture. And this, this, was, a, this was a tough area to, to farm in in a good year, but much less during the festival. And he said it would blow out. And so he said, then we would just all get in the truck, all the, all the community, all the men uh, would go to southern Minnesota. And they would try to find work because there was enough moisture there for crops and canning factories and that type of thing. 
And so my dad always told me about how they would go, you know, you, you didn't get very many miles in a day, uh, but he said they would stop at a small town and, and the first thing you do is find the sheriff and ask if you can sleep in the jail. And so he said, you know, we slept in every jail uh, between Harriet, South Dakota and Southern Minnesota. He said, there's no jail I haven't slept in. And so they did that for a number of years through the depression. Every year they would make that trip. And, uh, but so he was very supportive of the no-till uh, because he said, you know, this is a chance where it, it won't blow up and it'll evolve as, as a plant. And, and he said, I think that, he said, I think that could work. And then he just walked away and went back to work, which I took as a win. <laughs> and, and so consequently, I, I think that's, that's how it kind of got started for me. It had, I had to have a blessing, so to speak, um, because I wanted, I wanted peace in the family. I wanted, um, I, I needed support. And, um, you know, in order to do that, you know, you need to know your immediate families on your side, but also your your parents and aunts and uncles. I mean, that, I think that's the human aspect of it. And um, so we, we moved forward in the way we went. Yeah. So were you fortunate enough then when you started plant dabbling with cover crops? Was he still with you at that point? Or uh, what was the opinion? Yeah, he would have um, just at the very beginning stages. Uh, and then he would have passed. Uh, but uh, so we, we started you know, in with some two, one and two way type. Adamir Caligari, if you know this name from um, Brazil, got us started here uh, with cover crop combinations. And so um, uh, listening to him talk at No-Till on the Plains uh, one day. And so then that was 2006 for us. And so then uh, we got back here and we had enough money in the treasury. We bought like seven different species planted them as monocultures, and then we planted them a two-way, and then a three, and then a four, and a five, and six, and a seven, and um, 2006 was a big drought, which I thought was just horrible. It's going to set us back another year, but it's the best thing that could have happened, because then we got to witness the power of diversity, and the seven-way species uh, yielded the most biomass and, and functioned the best. And the single monocultures basically dried, dried up and died. And so I never looked back on covers after that. I mean, it was just a definitive moment for me that just stuck in my mind. And again, it's my wife that, uh, you know, we were, it was a Sunday morning. We took a Jeep drive and I said, gee, honey, we're close to the covers. Why don't we stop there? And she said, oh, so we're not just taking the drive on a Sunday morning. We're, we're going to work, aren't we? And I said, well, we're so Outing. An Audi. So we stopped and um, and we were walking through these and looking at them because everybody had quit looking at them because it's so terribly dry and hot. And uh, but that's when they played their hand. And uh, really, I have to credit my wife with a lot of observation there, too, in terms of what's happening here. Why is this? And so not only is she a good grazer, she's also got an eye for cover crops. So, and so consequently that, that uh, is kind of how that evolved. And, and uh, but it was a definitive moment. And again, uh, Adamir Caligari, you know, can you, can you teach me? And uh, he's such a gentleman that, that he did help a lot. We brought him in for, for uh, workshops and all that. And uh, yeah, really good. 
Uh, Josh Nelson has a question up here on another podcast webinar. How do you do sap analysis and Haney testing on your farm? Have you seen the results correspond? So I did sap analysis Monday. Let's see what's what's today? Thursday? Thursday evening, right? So Monday I did sap analysis. And uh, I'm, I'm not here to promote uh, any particular lab, but we sent them to New Age uh, Lab on Monday. So I took them and they want them taken in the morning. They want 80 grams of biomass. Uh, so I took uh, corn and I took wheat, spring wheat. I took them both. So I did four fields of corn and uh, the corn corn's a lot easier because at that stage, the initial test, you take the entire plant. So it doesn't take so long to get the 80 grams. On the wheat, they just wanted the newest fully functioning leaf. Whoa, <laughs> that's a little more accumulation, right? Uh, so, uh, so, but got 80 grams together. And then I, uh, at noon, I'm in Bismarck, got my transmittal sheets done. I'm mailing uh, through FedEx. I overnighted them. Uh, today, um, and I haven't um, uh, been able to check on this yet, but um, our farm manager said they should be on his email and probably on my email this evening. Uh, so then we'll, so, um, from there, uh, most likely tomorrow then will be a foliar application. So uh, I use a mineral, total mineral um, that uh, get, you know, I, I don't do it yearly, but a total, I have a total mineral done on each field. So I have some idea what's going on there. And then I look at the biology of PLFA because I want to know the workers. Do I have them? Don't I have them type thing. And then we've been using the concept of um, microbes plus carbon plus nutrient. And so with the foliar, that works pretty well. So we, we graze our own uh, microbes uh, in terms of leachate on vermicompost leachate. And so today, um, you know, so I've got a 1200 gallon insulated tank that, that all um, gravity flows into. And so today we put a pretty good dent in it tomorrow too, because uh, we're doing foliar on the corn. So we're growing 60 inch corn with covers. And uh, you can be uh, quite efficient um, in terms of the nutrient because uh, when I put it on as a foliar, so I have the microbes, uh, and I think we use 10 gallons today and probably tomorrow. Uh, so 10 gallons in terms of the leachate with the microbes, and then you add a carbon source. So that could be um, molasses or that could be a fulvic acid or humic acid, uh, you know, one of the acids that are at the end of the decomposition. Uh, trail. And then you can add uh, water-soluble nutrient. Uh, so we've got an easy one like um, uh, concentrated fish emulsion. Uh, that's an easy, very water-soluble one as well. Uh, so then we just go ahead and put a foliar on, but I like to see the plant sap uh, analysis before this next one goes on, because then we can start to adjust and, and then I'll add the nutrient portion of it if I need to. If I don't need that, then I'm going to add the molasses. The molasses or the carbon is the food and the leachate is the workers. So I start bringing those two together. You got to have workers. And if you got workers, you got to feed them. And then if you need, if I need nutrient, I can add it. If I don't need nutrient, I, I don't have to add that. So that kind of gives me a pretty good look at that. So last summer I did uh, plant sap four times. And uh, so you can start to plot this out. 
And so this is kind of a role that I played with our team over the last 40 some years. Uh, you get enough of this information and you start to plot it and then you start to see a line. Um, you get enough dots on the page and you can draw a trend line. And so it, was, it starts to play itself out. You start, you start to see what you have and what you don't have. And so that, so that's, that worked out well. And I like the, the PLFA I do uh, just to see what the workers in the soil uh, because I also put it, put the leachate on uh, with the seed as a, as a bio-inoculant. And so I got started with plant sap uh, just by visiting with John Kemp. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like to listen to somebody talk and then not apply something. I want to glean something out of that talk and, and I want to play it out. And so with, with John Kemp, it was the plant sap analysis. So now we're into the second year of it, and uh, you know it appears as though. So putting it on as a foliar, Lauren, you know this. It's a lot different in terms of efficiency than if you go through the soil microbes, and so you're you're kind of short circuiting the system a little bit. You're going directly onto the leaf surface, which also has microbes on it, and so it's a little different scenario. But um, there's a reason why our fertility and the standard fertility nutrient management is is a bit inefficient. You know, there's a reason why we can only we struggle to get 50% of the fertility into a plant. And that's very well documented in, in a lot of the work uh, that a lot of groups have done over the years. And so uh, I think this is gonna improve our efficiency. Um, and uh, water quality, uh, another reason to bring in the covers is so important because if we don't secure our inorganic nutrient, that it, it's an issue. And so we need to secure our inner, inorganic nutrient. Once it's inorganic, it's plant available. And so we, we need to do something. If it didn't go into that plant, we need to get it into a cover. Anyway, I didn't mean to go on and on, Lauren, sorry. Oh, I, I think that that's what people sign in for to get the <laughs> in-depth stuff. And uh, looks like we got one more question here. And then I got one final one for you is what causes a long-term no-till field to roll before a full-till field to roll? I would assume that is like corn rolling or something like that. Okay, you, you got to help me out a little bit there. Uh, roll, it tends to roll up to conserve moisture. Oh, oh, oh. Pineappling, I would call it. I, I'm assuming that's what the question's referring yeah, to. Where the leaf is curling to. Yeah, I mean, we, so we, just came, we just came across Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and even in Iowa, there's corn pineapple pretty hard in spots. So yeah, yeah, and so so interesting, interesting question. And so one of the reasons I've always enjoyed the monitoring is what what system is is functioning. And so one one thing I never liked was terms, uh, handles or terms on a particular system. <clears throat> because I, for years I did uh, monitoring work here in the Dakotas on uh, organic systems. And I also did it on no-till systems. I did it on conventional tillage systems. I did it on systems that maybe the, the Hutterites were using or, you know, different groups and entities. And so if you have, if you have functioning soil aggregates and you have functioning scenarios, I think that's the key. And so do you, do you have a, an adequate respiration level? Do you have an adequate carbon level? Do you have enough food 
in your system or the biology to make these functions happen. And so just because it's maybe uh, labeled as one item or another doesn't necessarily mean that it's fully functioning by any means. So I'll give you an example. We got a fair number of no-till systems and what I would call maybe direct seeding systems uh, in the Northern Plains. And so the interesting thing is uh, our wind erosion is just gotten sky high again. Well, what's going on? Okay. So we start looking at, you start to unravel it a bit. Okay. So what do you got for food? Well, you know, our number one crop at one time was spring wheat. Now for the last five, six years or more, it's beans. Okay. So soybeans is our primary crop. None of these crops are evil, but one has a lot of food in it and one doesn't have much food in it. And so now we've moved in, we've changed our cropping scenario. We've increased our bean acres. So we've increased the low carbon plant, okay? So, the, so you can still call it a no-till system, but we have so many no-till systems right now that we can't control the wind erosion on them. Well, there's not enough food and there's not enough cover in them. And it's too, freak, too frequent. None of, them are, none of these crops are evil, but it's too, you're playing the card so frequently that you can't bring enough food in, build that aggregate, stable aggregate back. And when we don't have that, it also suffers an infiltration. So a lot of these things are tied up. So in order to really adequately answer that question, it's, it's a bit of how much, how much food do you have in your system? Uh, how, and how is that functioning in those terms? And so that, that would over time unravel it all. But initially, that's what I've seen occur in the Northern Plains, that even though, even though now we call them no-till systems or direct seed systems, we got a lot of them that are showing stress signs, like curling, like um, wind erosion. Uh, so we get soil aggregates on the move, and you get enough of those clay colloids in the air, and there's phosphorus attached to them, and everything, gets, everything becomes mobile. And, and um, th this is not building back. <laughs> this, this is not soil regeneration. And so we got to get a handle on, on those type things. So you start to see symptoms and sometimes they tell you some things. I think that opens the door for my final question then. Uh, <laughs> go back to one of the first comments that really ever stuck in my mind that you've said, and you seem to hit on it pretty good tonight. It is the whole carbon cycle, but the, the one that really lit me up way back when and kind of helped me understand it is solve the water cycle, solve the carbon cycle and vice versa. So, so the carbon cycle and the water cycle. And, and um, I, think, I think if we start to understand some of those type things, it helps us put together something that functions in our ecosystem, wherever we live, right? And so when we started to uh, take a look at the whole uh, carbon scenario, you know, when I first looked at cover crops, like I mentioned to you earlier, I didn't look, them, look at them from the viewpoint of uh, a carbon cycle. And I, and I should have, and I did eventually, but not the first day. And so you start looking at that scenario and, and yeah, now we're using additional water. Well, okay, 
but now you're bringing in carbon and you're bringing and you're starting to mimic um, how our systems, how our soils evolved. And so our soils evolved with plant diversity and they involved with um, ruminants and they involved with predators. And so it was, a and, and basically if you look at that whole scenario, the soil health principles come falling out of there. And so then you look at this whole scenario, whereas um, uh, we were so concerned about saving water initially, Lauren, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s, because there was even there was even people in the state that were talking about bellowing two years in a row. Okay, if you could imagine two years of black fellow in a row. I mean, it's just almost makes your, your head spin. And so <clears throat> what we didn't realize is how that was going to change. And what we didn't realize is that when we put the carbon cycle as a function, all of a sudden this water wasn't short. This, this water was adequate. And, and all of a sudden we eventually found out we could grow virtually any crop we wanted to. And so you go across the landscape, all of a sudden corn for grain, beans that we used to think at one time, they're, they're not something we could even think of growing other than Eastern North Dakota initially. And so as you bring the carbon cycle forward, the water cycle starts to evolve in that same process. And we start tying them together. And all of a sudden, yes, that is an adequate amount of water. I mean, I mean, short of a bona fide, yeah, you are now at 50% of the water you used to get. That's an impact, obviously. And so, but consequently, you take your year-to-year -year function, it restored soil function for us, and it restored water cycles for us, and, and uh, it went from not being able to get water into the profile to we can grow the crop plus a cover crop. So now the Minokan farm, we're growing cover crops with the cash crops, especially with 60-inch corn. That's a good fit for us. And not to mention the wildlife aspects and the insect world and the pollinator world and the bird world and everything that ties in here uh, in a more of a holistic manner. But those two cycles just function so dependent on each other, but we have to bring the food into the system. And when we do that, things, things change. How about an encore question now? <laughs> <laughs> the the five soil health principles yeah thoughts reasoning i mean i i love the simplicity of the five everybody wants to bring in more okay but let's we're, we're, yeah we're, yeah yeah let's talk about that a little bit uh, I'll, I'll say this much about them so you know if you look at the principles if you feel they're um i'll put it to you this way we made progress when we took the principles and wrote a description for the Northern Plains for them. Before that, they were just principles, okay? But if you take each principle for your locality or whatever state or landscape you're in, <clears throat> and you describe them for that landscape, that was a game changer for us. And so that description, so I, so, so my, my role, I did a, I did a description for, on those principles for USDA for the Northern Plains. And so it was a start of uh, how a conservation planner, how a farmer, how a rancher, anyone else, doesn't matter what walk of life they're in, how could they take these and look at that, gave it context. 
Okay. So when you had when you had a written description of, of each principle, it gave it context. And so I think that's when, you know, and that's how they were intended in my vision is I guess they were intended to be used in a systems approach, but you have to, you should describe for you because you're different than obviously than the Bismarck area or the Kansas or Nebraska. I mean, that's also different. And so you start looking at our mollusol soils and we were glaciated. So, you know, a number of times, and then you start looking at how that fits in our environment with our temperatures typically and and uh, you, you make yourself much more durable but i think uh, really the description of them uh, is what what i needed uh in order to understand what i thought we could maybe do you know um so that that's kind of how that, that that part played out we just had another question here but uh what do we got there and Jay, give a example, a description of a principle for his context. Sure. So, so if you if you take just take diversity for example, or take take armor, I like to call it armor, but cover on the soil. And so, in our environment, you know, does that is that going to mean a green plant? Is that going to is that going to be dead litter? Is that going to be planting green? What are the things that I can look at to achieve this? Okay. And so in the diversity description, I like to get things like uh, the four crop types. I like to get things um, in terms of the diversity as to the why and in terms of the exudates. So, you know, uh, if you understand how our soils were built, so our soils evolved with the perennial landscape and, and the perennial landscape was continual. So it warms and cools, broad leaves and grasses, but they were continual. Okay, and so then all of a sudden you start to understand why soils respond to this cover crop. Okay, because now you've extended the green plant life. It's not just the plant you put in in the spring. Now you have another one in the fall or something that you might have interceded. It uh, depends on what your options are again in this description. So if I'm in Georgia, uh, this fall winter window gets really important. If I'm in North Dakota, uh, I got much fewer options in that scenario. And so you, you start to evolve and, and write about your, your area and your description. And, and what are these aspects and why? Why? So if you bring in more diversity, why is that a good thing? And, and so you, you start to slowly unravel that. And I think then it's a matter of two, like uh, the livestock integration. Why is livestock integration? Well, inside their their um, inside the ruminant is very low oxygen, basically anaerobic or close to it, and outside is very aerobic, and they're mobile. They can walk, and so they walk across the landscape and they spread biology, and they populate it, and so consequently, you know, they were. And, and, and very similar with birds. Why is why is this animal life so important? Birds spread biology, and you know, as they're hopping across the soil, and they're very mobile again from location to location. All these things start to come in. They can come into your description, and in terms of why or how you're going to try to do this, and then that description shouldn't be it shouldn't be locked in stone. That description is something you should revisit, rewrite rethink uh, because 
if you're fortunate in life and your mind uh, evolves and you're willing to continue to learn, uh, which I think is one of the gifts of life, if, if you're willing. And so consequently, you'll rewrite this on occasion and you'll refine it. So I've re rewritten mine a number of times. And, and so you start to evolve. But that it also means you need to delve into your landscape. What, what was on your landscape? Did the railroad write a description? Did the settler's diary have a description? Uh, what, what can you find that would have a, a description of your landscape at one time? Those are really important, I think. And then they become a mechanism because we got rebuilt, or we got built initially over geological time. And now we're trying to do this in a real short period of time. Uh, but we can be a bit more centered, I think, in terms of a bit more targeted. And I think we can make some of these things happen. Uh, but, but we have to, when we understand the description of the principle, then I think it becomes more clear as, as, as humans. Uh, you know, that, that for me was one of the cha most challenging but hardest things to understand is figure out where we're at on that ecological succession and that, yeah. you know, and I, you know, I know I was, a, I can tell you the day that I figured it out, I was in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Ray calls me that day because he was at my farm and uh, I was like, Ray, you're not going to like what I say when I come back. He's like, what? And I was like, I think I finally figured out, you know, everything we've been leading to up to this point is invert. You know, here in Iowa, the settlers went right on past because we were a swamp. It wasn't until they learned how to drain it. And, you know, so how we're never going to farm it if it were back to that swamp state. So we got to look where we're at today. And, you know, that was a big change right there. And, you know, once I started understanding that little simple fact, taking it forward. So yeah. Yeah. any final thoughts here? I don't want to keep you up too late. I, I appreciate the time and this has just been a true honor. I mean, it was nice to visit with you, Lauren, and uh, appreciate what you do and uh, representing uh, our, our resources, especially in Iowa. And, uh, and you're, you're a little bit like, uh, you know, the livestock and the birds, you get around quite a bit. And so consequently, that, that influence is, is nice to have out there. And, and as we speak for the resource and, uh, you know, we're my, you know, I, I have a goal uh, and a lot of people do, but my goal is I want to farm forever. It's a pretty simple, straightforward goal. I want to farm forever. <clears throat> but when you have a goal, uh, it changes your, your thought pattern and it, it helps you focus and concentrate. And uh, then all of a sudden, all of these items start to take on a different meaning uh, to you. Uh, you know, so so I, I really encourage folks uh, to to get a to get a goal for your yourself or your entity or however your farm uh, get a goal. And uh, again, that doesn't have to be locked in cement. You can revisit it. You can refine it. But it's a great place to start, and I think it helps all the partners get focused in on on what you're doing. Well, and bu building them partnerships and networks and, you know, and it's, it's, I tell everybody, I'm not afraid to admit I've got lazy the last several years. I don't have to know everything. I know who to call. 
And that, that speeds the process up, you know, that, that's, that's one of the things I really wanted to bring out that 1980 mindset you had, you know, you were a lot of our mentors who was yours and it was great to hear that tonight. So with that, I'm going to thank you and uh, Rachel, any final thoughts, words, or we'll sign off here. And I assume Rick will be back next week. Otherwise, if he calls again, I, I enjoyed this. It's always fun when he calls and said, hey, can you hurry up and fill in quick? And uh, I hope we, I think we did it justice tonight. So, Well, it was, uh, it was an honor to visit with everyone. And uh, Lauren, thank you for making this um, relaxed and, um, and uh, appreciate, appreciate what you do. So thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, as I said, good night, everybody. And Hope to see you back in the future on the road somewhere along the line. So. <laughs>